Thank you so much. Okay, good morning, everyone. Hello. Welcome. My name is Amy Gravino, and I'm very happy to be hosting this hour of Autism Lives Podcast-a-thon. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, we are live on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and Twitch, so please feel free to engage on any of those platforms in any way you see fit. Ask questions. Um, you can also ask questions here uh, within the live stream, and I'll be happy to, to, to make sure that we keep track of those. Um, I can address some of them throughout my talk today or wait until the end, but we'll definitely get to your questions regardless. Um, so I'm, I'm super, super thrilled um, to be here hosting. Uh, kind of just a, a brief look at what we're going to be talking about today. I'll be sharing with you some of my story as a woman on the autism spectrum, my experiences growing up, what that was like for me being autistic as a child, um, and then how I came to ultimately learn about ABA, uh, Applied Behavior Analysis. Um, which is the field in which I currently work, sort of, um, and I'll explain that as well. And kind of what I'm hoping for in terms of the direction of the field of ABA. What what are the things that the field still isn't quite getting right and that it needs to be better at um, for the sake of all people on the autism spectrum? Um, and thinking about those future directions, thinking about where ABA has come from and where ABA needs to go in order to be a something that continues to be relevant to all people on the autism spectrum. And, um, and very briefly at the end, we'll kind of talk a little bit about uh, how ABA can be applied to autism and sexuality, which is going to be a great segue for my second segment tomorrow. So make sure you tune in tomorrow, April 6th at 10 a.m. Eastern, 7 a.m. Pacific, and I'll be hosting another hour with my very super extra special guest, Dr. Peter Gerhardt, and we'll be talking all about autism and sex and sexuality for a whole hour. So make sure you've had your coffee and you're, and you're all set and ready to go for that because it's going to be a great way to start your morning. Um, okay, so we're rocking and rolling. So let me tell you, um, I was diagnosed with autism at the age of 11. But what does that mean when you're 11 years old? Not a lot. So in 1994, Asperger's syndrome was first added to the DSM-4. That's when it first came to exist as an official diagnosis. And of course, as we know, autism existed long before then. Um, and kind of came about in the, in the 1940s with Leo Connor and his observations. Um, Donald Triplett, who was the first person ever diagnosed with autism, who is highlighted, uh, I may mention, in the film In a Different Key, um, in which I'm also interviewed. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it, based on the New York Times bestselling book by John Donovan and Karen Zucker. In a Different Key premiered on PBS last December 13th. Um, definitely a, an excellent kind of history and overview of autism, really worth watching. Um, but so into the, the world that autism came into, uh, at, you know, when it was first observed, was a very challenging world for that diagnosis to exist in. And me getting diagnosed in 1994 was a challenging world for me to be diagnosed in um, because there was no national conversation about autism, right? People didn't know what autism was. Uh, the word didn't carry a lot of weight, except people tended to think of Rain Man when they heard autism. Well, you know, Ray Man is a guy, right? And, and what does that mean for an autistic woman? What does that mean for a 9, 10, 11-year-old girl who is just trying to exist in this world, who's trying to make friends at school and failing miserably at every turn, I would add? Um, what relevance did a diagnosis like that have on my life at that point? Well, it, it had all the relevance in the world and yet no relevance at all at the same time. Um, because hearing those words from that child psychologist at Stony Brook University on Long Island, where I grew up, um, I'm a New York girl, born and raised, um, was just the beginning of a very long journey. Um, and I had no concept, you know, of what my life was going to be like, because when you receive that autism diagnosis, you get a lot of other things along with it, which, is, which, I, which I like to call the nevers. Your child's never going to do this. Your child's never going to do that. And it's all these dire predictions, right, about what the future is going to be like for someone with autism um, or someone who's autistic. And so we part of what we're called to do as we grow up is to think about what we want to do with our lives, what we're going to be when we grow up. I, you know, after receiving the diagnosis and then experiencing all the bullying that I began to experience around that time, around, so from third, second grade until I graduated high school, just kind of nonstop bullying, I wasn't able to picture my future. I didn't know if I was going to be alive to, to make it to the future. I began experiencing suicidal thoughts uh, around that time because 
you know, you walk into school every day and, and people are so eager to tell you how worthless you are and that you're ugly and you're a freak and a psycho and a loser, a retard. These words were used against me constantly. They were weaponized against me. Um, and, and within all of this is how I began to form my identity. My sense of self um, came about in this primordial soup of, of ableism and self-loathing. You know, that they call them formative years for a reason. This forms kind of the foundation of who you are. Now, the thing is, you can make choices as you go through life, right? And you don't stay the same person that you are when you're 11 years old. At least I hope you don't. And that's another thing, right? We often think that when someone's diagnosed as being autistic, that, that where they are at that point in their life, whether they're three or four or 10 or 11, that they're going to stay that way for the rest of their lives. And that certainly wasn't true for me. Um, but in that moment, you know, it was so hard to just exist, to just kind of get through each day. Um, it probably looked like to my teachers that maybe I was being lazy or stubborn or I wasn't trying hard enough. In fact, I was trying with every fiber of my being. Um, and it was just barely enough to keep me alive each day. That was how that was how difficult it was. And things only really began to change when I went to college. Um, I am the daughter of two teachers, now retired, so not going to college was not an option. Um, even though, again, the experts, when I was in elementary school, told my parents that I wouldn't go to college, uh, let alone finish high school. I told them I'd end up working in a sheltered you know, workshop, not to expect anything of me, not to spend money on me. Right. Great things to tell a parent about their child. Um, and, and just imagine, you know, what, what the, and what they were also writing in the reports about me. Right. They were writing things like Amy is unable to understand the intricacies of interpersonal relationships. Amy has no sense of humor. Amy does not have any empathy. I was nine years old when these things were written about me. Right. So I, I, I had a very keen way. And even if I didn't see those physical reports until just a few years ago as an adult, the words of others shaped my sense of who I was from very early on. And that's something that now being the age that I am as an adult and being in the field of ABA that I try to impart to the professionals to whom I speak as a public speaker um, is that the words you write carry so much weight, right? So I remember uh, in 2007, <laughs> I was looking at going to graduate school and for me, it's a funny thing how in my life, when I have found something that I want to do and that I'm passionate about, it's not something that, that I could predict or that anyone could, you know, I, it would just be like a switch turned on. Like when I picked out the place I was going to go to college, I set one foot on the sidewalk my first time there. I said, this is where I'm going to college. And I did. I got in. And in 2007, I, I had been living in Seattle, Washington. So I'd gone to college in Pennsylvania. I'd moved across the country to Seattle, Washington. Uh, got my heart broken, you know, fell in love, did all the things you do when you're in your early 20s and very, very stupid. And um, I really wasn't sure what my path was going to be. I had a, my undergrad degree was in English. My life's aspiration was to write poetry in a cottage in the Italian Alps. The problem with writing poetry in a cottage in the Italian Alps, however, is that you do it alone. And so this was my view. Again, I what I mentioned before about not being able to picture a future for myself. I didn't think I have anything to contribute to the world. I didn't think there was anything that I had to give. And so, you know, in 2007, that was when my mother began speaking to me about graduate school. And it was she who mentioned ABA. I really hadn't known anything about ABA prior to this. I never received uh, ABA uh, services as a child. Um, it wasn't something that I don't think my parents really knew about. Um, I remember, you know, we, I went to social skills classes. I, I, I underwent biofeedback, which is where they put electrodes on my head with a cold gel. And I had to move balloons on a computer screen over a wall with my brainwaves, um, stuff like that, you know, and lots of therapy, but uh, never ABA. So I, I really didn't have any kind of concept of, of what it was, but something in me when I heard about this keyed in. And I said, thank you, May. Thank you very much. Um, and I said, this is what I want to do. I, I can make a difference in this. That was the first thought I had. Um, and that's, you know, something that has become truer as my time has gone on uh, is no longer seeing my being autistic as a liability, but as an asset, realizing that my voice does have the power to help people, which I never believed that it would. Um, and that also began uh, when in, in, in college, because in 2005, I was uh, asked to be interviewed for a film called Normal People Scare Me, 
which is directed by a young man on the autism spectrum and his mother. It's available at normalfilms.com if you want to buy the DVD. And I think there's a, a long trailer on YouTube. And it was the first time somebody had ever wanted to put my voice on a platform in this way. You know, what do you do? You know, when you've gone through your whole life feeling that your voice carries no value, right? This, this is what I had grown up thinking and believing with every fiber of my soul, that nothing I said mattered, that, that I was worthless, you know? And then all of a sudden I'm hearing from this, this woman and her son, cause they're taking the film on the road. They're they took it all over the country, all over the world. And, and of all the people in the film who were interviewed, uh, other than this young man, the person who was being asked about the most was me. And I couldn't believe it. that was an extraordinary thing. And so that was the first time that I thought, you know, my voice has the potential to help people. And so I started uh, becoming a professional public speaker about a year or so after that. So I've been a professional public speaker now for about 17 years, which is a long time. Um, and it has truly changed, you know, so much of, of, of my life. Um, and, I, and I began doing that actually at the age of 14. My mother was on the board of an autism organization on Long Island, and they would have a spring conference, and I would speak on their teen panel. And that was where I got my start. Um, and that was AAJNY, which is now subsumed by AANE. Um, and, and, but that was, you know, where I got my, kind of my start there. But then doing this, speaking as a professional, began around that time. And so all these things started to fall into place and started to happen from this point forward. Um, and finding out about ABA in 2007, that was what made me want to join a graduate program to get my master's degree uh, in the field. Um, but there's a, there's a big world of difference between getting a degree in something and actually doing something <laughs> with that degree, right? So uh, I did uh, finally obtain the degree in 2010, 2011. Um, I kind of am, am shifty about the year because I, we had to design a thesis study um, that was my, for my thesis. And I, I chose to help two adults on the spectrum learn how to ask someone out on a date. That was what I chose to do for my master's thesis. Um, and that has kind of become a central focus of my work now. Um, I, I work now at, at the Rucker Center for Adult Autism Services as a relationship coach, uh, in addition to being a, a professional speaker. So, but at that point, um, I was still figuring out what to do. You know, nobody was focusing on adults, right? No, even now, a lot of the services that we see are geared toward children. The image we often have of autism is one of, of children. We forget that autistic children grow up to be autistic adults, right? We, we have to always remember that, that it's not just enough to focus on childhood. We have to think about the lifespan and about providing quality services to people, you know, from, from childhood all the way through young adulthood, through, through older adulthood. We have so little data and research on autism and aging, right? I don't know what autism and menopause looks like. What, what happens autistic people who go through menopause. We have, we have no information on that and we need that information. Um, so this was something that I became increasingly passionate about, you know, because of knowing very well from firsthand experience of the lack of support and services for autistic adults. Um, and, you know, there, there also be, kind of started to be a stark difference between finding out about ABA and figuring out what my role in this world would be. And I can still remember the first time I ever set foot in an ABAI conference. So ABAI is the Association for Behavior Analysis International, and they have a national conference every year. And it's big. It's a gigantic conference. There's zillions of people. And it's pretty overwhelming if you've never gone to something like that before. And I remember feeling kind of intimidated the first time that I went to one. And, and I said to myself, you know what? I'm here to be me. That's what I'm here to do. And, and that, that's all that matters. And so I try to keep that in my mind and in my heart as I move through the conference and as I encounter all kinds of different professionals. But it was still a lonely thing, right? It's a, it's a challenging thing to be autistic and to be in this field. And I have heard from actually other autistic uh, BCBAs who are in the field and they are experiencing similar things. So what people may not realize is that there are actually autistic people working in the field, either as behavior techs, as BCBAs, or in, in some other capacity. And they often don't have a voice and are often lost in a lot of those discussions and the dialogues, right, that we have online, that we have around um, autism and ABA, that just kind of end, ends up getting missed. Um, but so I, it took me time to really get a foothold, uh, you know, in, in the field. I mean, I, I would say it was, there was about 10 years between getting my degree 
and and where I am now, which is being asked to speak at various conferences, being invited as a speaker. Um, I'm actually very happy to say that uh, the ABAI National Conference this year is in Denver next month in May, and I've been invited uh, to be the inaugural speaker for a new speaker series they've created, which is the Montrose Wolf Social Validity and Outreach Speaker Series. So I'll be talking about autism and social validity um, as, as my talk for that, which I'm, I'm very much looking forward to. And I'm also I'm doing a panel and I'm also being a discussant for a symposium there. So my dance card is full. Um, but it was like it was a strange thing to feel like oh, here I am. I've been I've had this degree for 10 years. And why hasn't the field realized that I'm here? <laughs> you know, um, so that that kind of made me think about, well, what what is the field of ABA doing, right? Conversations were starting, have been starting to happen in the past few years, especially around neurodiversity, right? I, I, I remember when nobody ever used the word neurodiversity and suddenly it's it's everywhere. You know, suddenly neurodiversity is, is this buzzword. But, you know, my concern is that we, we often get caught up on words, right? We, we get caught up on person first versus identity first. We get caught up on, you know, neurodiversity and things become buzzwords instead of, really meaningful conversations about changing the culture. And that's what has to happen, right? So, you know, I see so much potential. I've, I'm actually a member uh, currently of the Progressive Behavior Analysis Autism Council. It's a new certification in addition, and it's a kind of an alternative uh, to the BACB, you know, BCBA certification. Um, and it, it takes a more progressive approach to ABA. It's the Progressive Behavior Analysis Autism Council. And there are three levels of certification um, there's there's autism uh, professional AP, there's autism supervisor AS, and autism interventionist AI, and it's meant to really look at you know what the field has been doing and say how do we do this better, right? So I I didn't when I learned about ABA in 2007, what I didn't learn about at that time was the controversy around ABA. That was something I wasn't aware of. I obviously became aware of it, you know in the intervening years, thanks to social media, especially. But um, at that time, I, I didn't know. And when, when I think back to what I was describing before, but about where, you know, the genesis of the autism diagnosis came into the world of psychology that existed in the 1940s. I also think about the world that, that ABAI, the ABA came into um, and how it, it grew to prominence as a field. And what we often, you know, forget a lot of the time. Yes, ABA has been used in other applications. It's used in basic research and not applied uh, research. But all the foundations that underpin uh, you know, much of this have their roots in, in ableism in one form or another. Now, that's not to say that that all ABA is bad. Of course not. I would, I would never say that. Um, but we need to be able to have nuanced conversations about you know, why are our ideas rooted in the fact that one way of being is superior to another way of being? Obviously, we want people to have the tools they need to be successful in life, to be able to cope with the world around them, of course. And, and we should be able to use every tool, tool at our disposal. But, you know, there's a difference between, um, you know, giving somebody a, a rusty screwdriver that, that, you know, doesn't really work too well and a brand new shiny screwdriver that's an optimal quality, right? So we want to Make sure that the tools we use in this field are, are the best they can be because autistic people deserve the best. Um, but yet all too often throughout history, we've only gotten either the worst or we've gotten, quote, what's adequate. But, but the fact is adequate is not adequate at all. Why, why would we ever settle for adequate supports and services when, when we could have the best supports and services? You know, I know that that, that, that sounds kind of pie in the sky and very optimistic, but that's the kind of person I am. I like to look at the world as how it should be, how it can be, not just the way it is. And that's how I've approached ABA. Um, I, you know, and I don't, I don't often have opportunities to talk about my experience uh, within the field either, because again, all the controversies that that exist, the conversations on social media have become so um, hostile and and so negative that it's very hard to have any kind of you know, nuanced conversation. And I, I, I am very heartened by the fact that many uh, ABA professionals I meet in person are so open-minded and they're, you know, they're, they're, they're interested in seeing changes happen to the field. They're interested in seeing the field move forward, right? Because, you know, what I, of, what I often see now, especially in my work as a professional speaker and as a consultant, um, because I, I also do um, consultations via Zoom through my business, Ascot Consulting, 
And if you visit my website, amygravino.com, you can find out more information uh, there about my consultation services. Um, also, you can find me on social media by the by quick little plug on Twitter at Amy Gravino and Instagram at amy.gravino. I'm, I'm on LinkedIn as well. And so what I have found is that there, there's, there's a disconnect, right? And the disconnect often comes from a lot of places. What I see in schools a lot of the time is, is the classroom teacher that many autistic students have will say, well, you know, this student uh, is a special ed student. They have a para, they have, you know, they, they work with the, with the BCBA. So they're not my student. And I say to these teachers, yes, that student is your student. They're as much your student as every other student in your class. And we, 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 we forget, you know, we, we don't realize how much investment is, is needed. You have to invest in autistic students just as much as neurotypical students. That investment is required on the part of BCBAs, on the part of classroom teachers, on the part of administrators. If you don't invest in a child, how can, they, how can you hope that they'll ever invest in themselves, right? And see that they have worth themselves. It has to start from somewhere. And, and that goes back to what I was saying about how the assessments and the reports and the things that professionals write carry an enormous amount of weight. So, you know, BCBAs, I, I want them to understand um, and by the way, although I have a master's degree in ABA, I'm not a BCBA. Um, I'm one of you, but not one of you, which I think is a good thing and serves me well in this, in this case. But I need you to understand that everything you do matters and you have the potential to make a difference in an autistic person's life. But whether that's for good or for bad is up to you, right? That That's entirely within your control. Um, and that, you know, again, that takes me back to my years growing up and thinking about the people who made a difference in my life. And I'm sad to say that there weren't very many. Um, you know, most of the teachers I had were indifferent or they would turn a blind eye. They'd say it's kids being kids. It's never kids being kids. And what would always end up being seen by my teachers and by the administrators was me reacting to being bullied rather than the actual bullying. Because the bullies knew how to hide, right? They knew how to disguise themselves. I didn't. I didn't know how to be subtle. So they would see me having a meltdown, being on the floor in the hallway, crying, screaming, whatever it might've been. And then I would get dragged off into the faculty lounge, um, you know, to, 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 to kind of calm down. But that's not solving the problem, right? That's just, you know, carting the embarrassing little you know, girl away so nobody has to see her. And by the way, not even little girl, because I had, I had these meltdowns in high school as, as much as middle school. So it's not something that was exclusive uh, to, to, to high school, I would say. Um, and so, so this is all of this, you know, is what has spurred me to the point where I'm at now, which is to do the work I'm doing, because how could I honestly do anything else? Because if I can spare one autistic person, one family from the pain and the heartache that I went through, then it's all worth it, right? Um, Again, as a reminder, if anyone has questions, please feel free to put them in the chat here. I'm happy to hear any comments that anyone has, any questions, and, and we'll make sure that we get to those at the end. This is meant to be a conversation as much as a presentation, so I, I would love to hear from you all, um, and, and I'm glad you're listening and paying such great attention. Um, and so, yeah, so, you know, again, thinking about why why I decided to, to you know, be in this field, and and. It's been a challenge in, in so many ways. As I said, it's been a challenge on the end of, you know, trying to, to get along with ABA professionals who maybe weren't used to an autistic person in their midst. In some cases, that kind of, there's a lot of paternalist, you know, paternalistic attitudes that pervade the field in some ways, especially being a woman, right? So again, that's, that's a whole, you know, when we talk about autism too, and we have to talk about those intersecting identities. So I'm not just autistic, I'm autistic and female. Or you, you might have somebody, uh, you know, hosting later on who's autistic and also a person of color or someone who's autistic and, and gay or, or trans or whatever it may be. And all those identities come together and, and affect the lens through which we see the world. Right. So that that became a part of, of the work I do as well, because, you know, working in, in the field of autism and sexuality, as I do, I have seen how these intersecting identities affect you know, a person's life, how they affect how they're perceived by others, um, how they're perceived by their parents, by the ABA professionals who work with them. Um, you know, it's, it's, 
we, we want to be seen as, as whole human beings, right? And I think what, what I see often, and I've said this in my work as well, is that sometimes we reduce uh, autism to a, a collection and series of behaviors. But autism is so much more than that, right? It's, I'm, I'm not saying that, that my identity is wholly tied to being autistic. It's not. It's a part of who I am. And nor do I view autism as a superpower because I don't. I not, but nor do I view it as a tragedy. It's, it's something that has shaped my experiences. It's something that shaped who I am as a person. And, and it, is, it, ha, it is something that has been a disability in my life. It is something that has caused me challenges and struggles. But so has people's perceptions of it, right? So that, that's, that's, that's the piece is that, you know, I, all I can do is go through this world being who I am. And other people are going to react to that. They're going to react to it in a good way or, or in a bad way. But for the majority of my life, it was, it was a bad way. And that, you know, the way that stays with you is, is, you know, like, it's like, you know, trauma attaches itself to you like a barnacle on the bottom of a ship, right? You look at the bottom of a ship, look at all those honking barnacles. There's, they're all over the place. You don't see them though. When you look at the rest of the ship, that's above the water, right? The, the ship looks fine. It's not until you look underneath that you see every, you know, all that stuff that's clinging. And that's kind of what, what trauma is like. It's, you know, the things that I've been through are never going to fully go away. And they, they form that, that foundation for, for how I, I view myself. And so I, I have so much more confidence now than I ever did, you know, when I was younger. My, my self-esteem is so much better than it was when I was growing up. But that took a lot of time. Um, and even though I am in this much better place, there is still a part of me somewhere in the back of my head that is waiting for the other shoe to drop, right? That, that unconsciously even waits for, you know, somebody to come in and say, oh, well, all the work you've done, everything that you've been doing, it's all over now. Turns out nobody likes you. You're a fraud, you know, that imposter syndrome, right? That I have it real bad sometimes. It kicks right up. But I also have tools that I've developed to, to help me learn how to cope with that, to help me know that I have value. And nobody can take that away from me. But I had to get there by myself, right? So again, going back to those assessments and things that were written about me, if that's the foundation I began from, how did I get here? Well, you know, a lot of it was removing the voice in my head that was my peers' voices, you know, that which was the only voice I heard for a long time, and slowly, you know, replacing it with my voice, the voice that decided who I am. Um, but I had to first figure out who I was. Um, and that, you know, again, that's something when I think about, you know, the field of ABA and I think about the, how we work with, with people on the spectrum, so often we're telling people who they are. We're telling people, this is what you have a hard time with. This is what you need help with. This is, you, you need this, you know, this DRO, you need this, you know, behavior plan, whatever. But we forget that part of growing up, you know, and being a, a teenager, especially is finding out who you are, right? It's, it's, you know, pushing back against the structures that you've grown up in and, and figuring out your place in the world. And so for me, that process didn't really start till I was more in my 20s uh, because I just didn't have those same experiences as my neurotypical peers. And so, you know, that's another thing that I am, am, am looking to do within my work uh, is that as, as I'm, for example, helping people on the spectrum learn dating and sexuality skills is how do we incorporate autistic, autistic forms of communication in, into this. Because I don't want it to just be that I'm telling someone, this is how you do things the neurotypical way. Well, that doesn't work for everybody, right? The neurotypical way, maybe it works for a lot of you folks out there. I don't know. But I mean, given the fact that so many people are in therapy and have hard times with relationships, I'm not so sure the neurotypical way is optimal for everyone. So what it should really be about is finding what is the best way for that person, right? So that's what I've come to kind of look at this through. Um, and, and, you know, the, the funny thing, right, is that one of the characteristics of autism that, that we think about is, you know, restricted and repetitive interests and difficulty with change, right? Yet I have seen all of that within the field of ABA. There's a lot of repetitive behavior. Um, there's a lot of restricted interests and there's a lot of difficulty with change. So, this field has been around for you know, quite some time now, um, and things are, I think, beginning to change. I am starting to see a lot of voices coming in, younger people 
who are more attuned to the neurodiversity movement, who are more aware of incorporating autistic voices, which I think is incredible. Um, and like I said, seeing autistic professionals in the field, which is you know something I don't recall ever being the case in, in years past, but that you know, it's 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 one thing to have you know individual people working in a school district or working um, in, in in an organization. It's a whole other thing to shift the culture of ABA altogether, right? And that is not something that any one person can do by themselves. I cannot do that alone. No one can do that alone. That's something we have to be wanting to do together. We have to be wanting to look at at this and say, okay, how do we make this something that that can be better than what it currently is? Because it's it's obviously it's not perfect, and we know that because there are so many things that masquerade as ABA that aren't actually that end up, you know, causing potential harm to people. Again, not because it's something anybody wants or, or, or is aiming to have happen, but because there's there's not enough training, there's not enough this, there's not enough funding. Like all of this stuff diminishes the quality of services that people should have. Never mind the fact that there is still such limited access. The services for adults on the spectrum. That's a whole other thing, right? So, so when I think about the future of the field, when I think about what I'd want to see, you know, I, I want to see us having more of these conversations. I want to see um, ABA professionals being willing to talk about both the, the, the positive qualities and, and the, the, you know, the, some of the, the challenges of the field. And it's, it's not a bad thing for us to, to talk about those things, but that's the only way that we can move forward. You, you, you don't move forward if you never talk about anything, right? I mean, I, I, and, and that I think is something that stymied me for a time in trying to establish myself as an autism professional is, well, you know, I know what I want to talk about and, and the conversations that I want to have, how do I, how do I, you know, reach people? How do I, you know, especially people who are maybe are less willing to have these conversations or, or who don't know how to have these conversations, right? We need, we need to model that. Um, last year uh, in, in 2022, I spoke at the ABAI Autism Conference in Seattle, along with Dr. Uh, Bob Ross. And we did a, we, we did a kind of a, pa a panel on difficult conversations uh, about autism and ABA. And we kind of modeled a conversation between a BCBA and an autistic you know, advocate. Um, although again, like I said, I'm not just an autistic advocate, I'm a professional too. But that was something we tried to do to show how these conversations can happen. Um, and, and, and I also want that to be something that parents feel comfortable with too. Like parents, please understand that, you know, you, in many cases, if you are the one who is you know, speaking for your child or, 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 you know, doing so until they're able to more speak for themselves, you have to be able to have these conversations with BCBAs too. Um, I personally can't stand the word expert because to me, it's, it's a static word that confers with it an authority that can't be challenged. And, and to, to my way of thinking, nobody is an expert in autism because we're learning so much about autism all the time. Our knowledge is changing all the time. We're learning, we're learning about ABA all the time. That's changing too. So we need to be willing to have that sense of open-mindedness and the willingness to have these conversations. And parents need to be willing to ask these questions of the BCBAs that, that you work with that have contact with your child, right? Because it's, it's you know, I, I think back to those experts who told these things to my parents who were very much viewed as quote, the experts. And what if my parents had listened to them, right? What if my mother had put me in an institution like had been recommended? Would, would I be where I am now? Would I be working at Rutgers? Would I be someone who's spoken at the United Nations for World Autism Awareness Day in 2011 and 2018? Would I be someone who's given a TED talk on autism and sexuality? Would I be the Amy Gravino I am now if my parents had listened to those people? I don't think I would have had a chance to be that person. I, and, and as difficult as things were, as hard as my life was growing up, and it was, I am grateful that my parents didn't listen to those people that they said, you know what, you, you wrote that fine. That doesn't mean that you're right. And, and, and you have to listen to your own hearts, parents, because I'm sorry to get emotional. It just really gets to me, you know, <laughs> but this is, this is the foundation. Like these years won't come back. These years of, of your child going through childhood, once they're gone, they're gone. 
my childhood is over. You know, I, I don't lament that fact. I'm, I'm very, very happy to be an adult and to be where I am now, but I can't get that time back. And I, I, I can't make it different, you know? So I, 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 I do wish that perhaps some things could have been different. Maybe I wouldn't, I wouldn't have had those suicidal thoughts from such a young age. Maybe I wouldn't have, you know, had to go on Prozac at the age of 12, but maybe I wouldn't have, you know, had to have a one-to-one aid in, in school and, you know, been told that I couldn't go on class trips unless my mother went with me. And I mean, how different so many things would have been. I, all I know is that, you know, childhood is a special time, but it's also the foundation for who your, for your, who your child's going to be for the rest of their life, right? We're, we're adults much longer than we're children. And so that that's, you know, why I think that's so important to keep in mind um, is that, you know, the thing about my being adult is that I, I chose my path as an adult as well. I chose, I was able to make the choice to go to college. I was able to make the choice to go to graduate school. Um, and, and I've been able to, to make the choice to, to not let my childhood experiences define who I am. Yes, they're, they're, they're the part of that foundation. And yes, they're, they're always going to inform kind of the, the way that I view the world. But I have been so lucky to be able to live long enough to see Amy Gravino become a fully realized person. A person that I didn't think would ever exist, right? Or who I thought would be just stuck in a cottage in the Italian Alps writing poetry. But I'm not. I'm here in the world. I'm still here. You know, that's, that's the biggest thing in the world is that I'm still here. Um, so I'm, and, and I'm so grateful to be able to be here to talk to all of you today and, and to tell you about my story and, and about my experiences in, in, in as much of a condensed amount of time as I could. Um, and I hope it will help you to think more about your children and think more about, um, the, the, the clients you support. If you're, if you're an autism professional, if you work in the field. So it's been, you know, such a pleasure to be able to, to talk to everyone today and, and also thinking again and thinking about, like I said, um, the field of ABA and where I hope things will go. That is why I'm, I'm really hoping the next frontier is going to be addressing autism and sexuality. As I said, when I began to do my master's thesis, there were no existing research um, studies in the, in the literature that focused on this area. So really it was something that just wasn't addressed and it creates this kind of vicious cycle. Well, oh, there's nothing in the research literature, so it must not be a problem. So we're not going to research it. And then there's nothing in the research literature. So it's this vicious cycle. Um, but for such an amazing tool that ABA is, and, and for how many studies there are te about teaching social skills, there really needs to be more focusing on dating, right? Because relationships are such a huge part of the human experience and, and one that's often considered optional or non-existent for people on the autism spectrum. Um, and that's something that I'm really excited to talk about in much greater detail tomorrow with my extremely special guest star, Dr. Peter Gerhardt, um, who is going to be on with me for our full show. So please tune in tomorrow at 10 a.m. Eastern, 7 a.m. Pacific. Um, I, I really hope I'll get to see you all there. Um, and again, if anyone has questions, please feel free to ask them now in the chat. Uh, I will be very happy to answer any questions that you, you might have. And, and I appreciate your supportive comments so much as well. Um, and, you know, thank you to May for saying that I'm a beautiful person. I, that's very lovely to hear. I do appreciate it. Uh, Joanne says, thank you for giving adults with autism a voice. As a mom of a 10-year-old son, I'm in the thick of IEPs and conversation building. I want him to live his best life, but I'm only thinking of college and living independently. But I'm missing tons of things. Thank you for reminding me of that. Absolutely. So just a kind of a point on that as well is that I think you know, when we talk about people on the spectrum, um, you know, living on their own, we tend to, I think, use the word independence. And, and what, I prefer to, what I prefer to look at is the idea of interdependence, right? So nobody is 100% independent in this life. We all rely on other people for, for certain things. So really, from, to my way of thinking, the goal should be interdependence, which is knowing who you are, knowing what you need help with, and knowing who to ask for for that help, right? So if I got to get my clothes dry cleaned, I got to know who to go to get my clothes, where, where to get my clothes dry cleaned, who to ask to do that. That's interdependence. So I think that, um, I think that that is a better thing to focus on than just independence because 
we don't hold neurotypical people to that standard, right? We don't say neurotypicals have to be 100% independent or they're failures. So, so why would we do that for folks on the spectrum, right? So interdependence, I think, is the better goal. Um, but, but awesome on you for thinking about that. You know, even as your son is 10, Johanny, good work. And thank you for your comment. Uh, Johanne, yes, I didn't see your previous comment. So thank you for sending in again. Uh, she said, thank you for using your experience to improve others' lives from your unique perspectives. Thank you very much. I, I, I really appreciate that. Um, yeah, again, I'm only one person. And the thing I, I, I want to leave you with, too, as we, as we start to get to the close of our hour together, is that there are many autistic voices out there for you to listen to. There are, are so many autistic adults who are sharing their stories, um, be it on social media or on blogs um, or in, in other forms of, of media. So listen to those adults, right? The, the, you, there's no advice you will get that will be better than the advice you'll get from listening to an, an adult on the spectrum um, because we have lived it, right? We've been there Again, nobody is saying that we're the same as your child. And, and that's something I sometimes have heard from parents. Well, you're nothing like my child. Well, ma'am, I certainly hope not. I'm not 12 years old. You know, I would hope the things that, that were challenging for me when I was your child's age are not the same things that are challenging for me now as an adult, right? That that shouldn't be the case. So it's 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 the fact that I can speak to what some of those challenges were um, that I think is, is so important. Um, so, so I, I hope that that's something that, that comes across and, and thank you guys for, you know, keep sharing your comments. I, I love seeing them here in the chat. Um, I, I appreciate everything you're saying so much. Again, if you want to find me on social media, um, at Amy Gravino on Twitter, at Amy.Gravino on Instagram. Uh, I have a Facebook fan page that I'm really bad at updating, but I'm, I'm going to try to get better at it or maybe just hire someone to do it for me. Um, and I'm also on, on LinkedIn as well, uh, Amy Gravino on there. Um, so I think we, we, there's a comment here, but I think something's missing, uh, from it. So I'll, I'll wait to see if more comes up there, but, uh, again, yes. So listen to autistic people, right? That's one of the most valuable resources, uh, that you can call upon in, in the work you're doing as parents, as professionals. Um, and, and, and that's something I wish I would have had as well when I was a child, right? There were, there were no kind of role models of, of autistic adults for me to look to and say, this is what I think my future, future could be like. That's part of being a kid too, right? Is, is seeing people who, you know, remind you of you or who are, are something that you feel you can aspire to. And, and I still remember distinctly that, you know, at 12, 13 years old, the one instance of ever seeing uh, somebody who was like me in a television show or in a movie was the show Third Rock from the Sun. And I don't know if any of you know the show Third Rock from the Sun, but the premise is that it's a group of aliens who have come to earth to observe humans and to learn how humans live. And so the characters who I identified with, with the way they reacted to things and the way that they operated within the world were the aliens, <laughs> you know? And, and so it made me so happy to, to have characters I could identify with, but then it also made me really sad because I said, well, but they're aliens. What does that say about me? <laughs> you know? So do I really fit in here? Do I belong? Those are the questions that I, that I started having, even as a child, wondering, do I fit in? Do I belong? And even now as an adult, with how far I've come with everything that I'm doing, that question still lingers sometimes. Every now and again, when I'm not, you know, insanely busy with all the work I'm doing, because I am very busy these days, but once in a blue moon, I'm just kind of like, you know, my brain never shuts off. I never stop thinking. That little thought creeps in. And so it's hard to make that fully go away. Um Another comment we have from Joanne, we need to focus on the strengths of the child to build confidence and self-esteem so we can teach the things they need improving. Yes, that's an excellent point, right? So again, right, historically, we focused on kind of the deficit model of autism and looking at the challenges that people have. And by no means do I think we should ignore challenges. Absolutely not. But it's a good idea to look at strengths as well, right? To look at what are, what are the things that somebody's doing right or the things that somebody is excelling in and how can we, how can we build on those things? Um, Again, there's a lot of contention about, you know, the medical model versus the social model of disability, um, you know, which is the idea of the medical model is that autism is the thing that is disabling, that, that causes a person problems and distress. The social model is that it's people's reaction to someone being autistic. That's the problem. It's society that causes a disability. Um, I, I look at both. You know, I don't think it's entirely one or entirely the other, um, because certainly autism in and of itself is a disability and can cause a lot of challenges, but also 
we have so many strengths that are often ignored and overlooked um, by those around us. So excellent comment, Joanne. Thank you for that. Um, okay, so here we have we had a comment. I want to point out something that teachers need to understand when when students are having behaviors and you need to take them out of the classroom or environments um, that will have a bigger impact in the long run and the student will lose friends. So that that's a good point, right? It's pre it's pretty stigmatizing, right, to take someone out of a classroom totally. Um, and I relate to that very much so. I, I, I still remember in elementary school, there was a science experiment they did that what somebody made, it was a volcano that, that would sort of erupt. And, and the, the sensory uh, component of that was so overwhelming to me and stressful that I, I couldn't be in the classroom when that was happening. I had to stand, I stood outside the door um, because I couldn't, it was, it was too overwhelming. And that, that's stigmatizing, right? That's, I mean, just inherently right there, the symbolism. All the other students are in the classroom and I'm outside of it. And that was kind of, that's kind of a metaphor for what my experience was like all through school, always being on the outside, always kind of feeling like I had my nose and my hands pressed up against the glass, but I could never get it. Um, and I, I mean, and I will say to the person who wrote that comment, I didn't even have friends at that point. So it's not like I had any friends to lose, um, but I, it definitely set me apart and for all the wrong reasons. Um, I did have, you know, I, as you hear from many autistic people, I had like one best friend at a time and rather than having like a group of friends. So I did have like one best friend when I was around 10 or 11, who was a, a year younger than I was. But then, you know, middle school hit and her friends didn't like me. So we stopped being friends. She, you know, I mean, that's, I don't blame her for that. You know, we were kids, but that was the unfortunate reality is that um, I, I, I was a liability. Being friends with me was not going to win you any points in the in crowd, you know what I mean? But the great thing about being an adult is that I no, I no longer give a crap about being part of the in crowd. I'm very, very happy being just who I am. But I had to live long enough to get to this point. I had to get through all these hurdles. I had to get through the experts thinking that I would never do anything. I had to get through the apathy of the teachers. I had to get through the cruelty and the malevolence of my peers to get to this point. And it, it shouldn't, it didn't have to be as hard as it was. And that's why I'm so passionate about what I do um, and why I'm so happy that I've had the opportunity to speak to all of you today. Uh, so we, we have just a few minutes left. So are there any other questions that anyone has, any other comments? Um, and again, as I said, I'll be back with you guys tomorrow at 10 o'clock Eastern, 7 o'clock Pacific, talking all about autism and sexuality. So I'll, I'll be very excited to hear your uh, questions then for me and for Dr. Peter Gerhardt, who's going to be my guest. Um, but yeah, it's it's just uh, it's been such a pleasure, you know, to uh, be able to chat with you today. Oh, and if we could, I forgot about the picture. If we could show the picture of me at the podium, just to show you, uh, you know, where I've come and where I am now compared to where I was. I don't know if we can get that up, um, Casey. If, if you're able to do that, uh, if not, that's okay. <laughs> I've been talking for almost an hour, um, but that's 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 the journey, right? So the journey begins for all of us. At, at that at that time of diagnosis, right? Whatever the day is, the month, the hour, that's sort of the beginning of something new. And no one can predict where that journey is going to take us, right? Um, it was a journey not only for me, but for my parents, for our whole family. Um, I'm an only child, so I don't have any siblings, but you know, even for, for my cousins and my aunts and uncles, it, it, was, it was a different kind of journey. And um, the fears that parents have, you know, what, what's going to happen to my child when I'm no longer here, even me now as an adult doing what I'm doing, my parents still worry about that, right? And and I understand that. I, I absolutely do. But I, the, the final kind of point I want to hammer home for parents, and, and, and it's a really important thing to keep in mind, is that your fear is not our responsibility, right? So what does that mean? So I, I you know, one of my clients that, that I met with was saying how they were afraid to, to tell their parents about, um, you know, what, what they want to do with their life or whatever, because they're, because their mother you know, is very anxious and gets worried a lot. And, and I said to them, it's not your responsibility to worry about your parents' fears, right? Your fears are legitimate. They're real. And I would never dismiss them in any, in any capacity, but it is unfair to put those fears onto your autistic child to make it our burden, right? We are just trying to exist and live in a world that's not built for people like us. So, so parents, you know, and we see this in other circumstances too. We see parents putting emotional burdens on children in other ways that have nothing to do with autism, but especially 
you know, if, if, if knowing what, what I've gone through, the burdens that I carried on myself already, had my parents put that on me, I think I, I shudder to think how much worse, you know, things, things might have been. I, I used to carry around like a 20 pound backpack when I was a kid. I never would put my books in my lockers as if I was afraid to ever put anything down. And I remember the weight of that backpack and, and your fear is, is a similar weight, right? And that, that weight can be so crushing. So absolutely, you know, your fears are legitimate and real, but they're not the responsibility of your autistic child, right? We already hold ourselves to such incredibly high standards. I am no different. I held myself to higher standards than anyone else. And I would beat myself up if I felt like I didn't meet them. But your job, you know, as parents and your job as, as professionals, if you're a BCBA, whoever you might be, is to support your, your children and your clients to the best of your ability to, to do what is right for them, not right for the people around them, right? It's not about making the rest of the world comfortable with your artistic child. It's about helping your child be comfortable and successful in the rest of the world. Um, so that's kind of a, you know, a final point that I want to take home there. And um, do we have any other questions and any other uh, final comments? We've just got a few minutes left. Um, I'm happy to hear any other questions that people have. Are we able to call up that photo, uh, Casey, the photo of me at the podium? I still haven't seen it yet. I don't know if it went up or not. Um, but again, if, if not, that's okay. Um, so just, just a couple of minutes to go. Um, and you've, you've been such a great audience. I just you know, want to thank everybody for tuning in. There we go. So, so that, that is me. Uh, I, I spoke at a conference in, in Cabo San Lucas, Mexico in 2018. And it was the first time that someone ever translated one of my presentations into another language. And that's another milestone, right? So I mentioned um, being in that film, Normal People Scare Me. And the, that, that was the first time anybody wanted to put my voice on a platform. That was the first time that I, that I was translated into another language. And that's, that's a big deal too, right? The idea that these stories, our stories as autistic people transcend culture, they transcend languages. And that's, that's kind of what it's all about is that we, we have so much that binds us together rather than it separates us. And, and we can do so much to help each other as BCBAs, as parents, as autistic advocates, as professionals. We just need to listen to each other and cross those barriers. So Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all so much uh, for, for your attention today. Um, liberally looking forward and I'll see you back here tomorrow at 10 a.m. Eastern, 7 a.m. Pacific to talk all about autism and sexuality with my very, very special guest, Dr. Peter Gerhardt. And I hope you enjoy the rest of the podcast-a-thon and my thanks as well to the Autism Network, to Autism Live and Shannon Penrod for, for having me as part of this. I truly appreciate it. Um, and I hope you enjoy all the rest of the episodes and more stories from the spectrum. Thanks so much, everyone.